Hey everybody and welcome to episode six of Today We Laughed and Learned. I can't believe we've gotten to episode six. What do you think, Chris? How you doing? I am doing great. I love it. I'm having so much fun. I know. It's incredible. You? I'm having so much fun and I'm learning stuff, which really was the main objective, as you remember. And um <laughs> And yeah, and it's just so exciting. I don't think, you know, we, we were joking in the first few episodes about how, you know, really you and I will be the only ones listening to this. And, uh, and we've had so much positive feedback and so many listens and, 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 you know, followers on our social media. So it's so exciting to think that what we're putting out there is resonating with people. I think that that's just the only sort of validation we need. What do you think? I am beyond giddy every time I see this has been a new listen. I really thought we were the only we were going to record these and listen to them ourselves. And that yeah. was going to be the end of it. I appreciate everybody listening to us. I would love some feedback. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we're improving with every episode. Uh, yeah. I hope everyone's enjoying it. And we do really appreciate it. And we appreciate the followers on Facebook and Instagram and everything. Absolutely. And uh, especially if you, you know, learn something that you didn't know yesterday, our our work here is done kind of thing. Um, So it's all just anything apart from that is just a bonus, right? It sure is. (laughs) All right. So (laughs) since we're talking about that, um, you can give us a follow or just track our episodes, whatever, on uh, Facebook at Today We Laughed and Learned. Instagram at Today We Laughed and Learned. We would love any ideas that you might have for topics that you would like us to delve into. You can drop us an email at todaywelaughed at gmail.com. And something that's super exciting is that we actually got some feedback from a listener and she doesn't Yay! want us to, yeah, I know it's so, I just love this engagement, you know, just seeing um, how this is resonating with people. So we're not going to reveal her name. She's uh, all we know is that she's a young listener and um, she listened to our last episode, episode five, which I'm not sure if anybody remembers, but we ended up talking about the origins of the patriarchy. But what I said in the beginning is that the whole idea for that topic came from me wanting to talk about uh, women who had invented things that we always thought were invented by men. So she picked up on that and she was really excited about, listening or learning about women who had, you know, sorry, women inventors. Um, so uh, it's exciting to think that we, you know, have a, a topic that um, she might want to hear more about. So here's what I'm thinking, Chris, I don't know if you agree. Um, I was going to mention uh, just a few women inventors because we appreciate this listener so much and I want to give her a little bit of information. Um I could talk a little bit about that just before you get started. And then maybe, although we don't normally reveal our topics, maybe in the future we can actually devote a topic to to female inventors or women inventors. What do you think, Chris? Should I mention a few fun ones? Well, fun. Yeah, kind of fun I ones. I think you should mention. I'm curious. <laughs> I <laughs> yeah. say you go for it. And I think it's a yeah. great topic for another day. I mean, nobody's going to know when we put it out, but I think it's a great exactly. topic. I think so too. And it's just so, it's so, you know, it's so in keeping with the topic of the patriarchy that there are so many things that were invented by women that, you know, and these women never get credit. Um, so I just think it's really important to, to shout out to them. And, uh, mm-hmm. and I just really want to thank our listener. I really, we really appreciated that feedback. Um, anyway, can I, yeah? excuse me, can I just mention something before you start is mm-hmm. if you do drop us an email, please let us know if we can use your name on the air or not. That's why mm-hmm. we're not 
not including it. It wasn't mentioned if we could use it or not. So, right. Um, yes. <laughs> sure. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. So thank you, dear listener. We appreciated your feedback. So this is for you. Um, one mm-hmm. of the women that I wanted to talk about was Dr. Shirley Ann Jackson. She was born in 1946. She was the first African-American woman to earn a doctorate from MIT. She is, uh, she was the first, yeah, African-American woman to be president of the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, which she still is today. And she was only the second African-American woman to earn a doctorate in physics. So she was born in 1946. Let's say that she was doing, you know, she was studying in, let's say, 1966. These were very tumultuous times for African-Americans. So you can just imagine um, how challenging it must have been for her to break through all of these, um, all of this racism and all of these constraints that were put on her to to achieve all of these things so she's just an absolutely phenomenal woman so what did she yeah just for one second did you actually raise um, your hand i did (laughs) 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 um also i mean it was a difficult time for african-americans don't forget it was very difficult time for women as well well exactly there were two barriers being broken there absolutely Uh, what a trailblazer so you know just uh, an absolutely remarkable woman, and uh, as if all, everything that she achieved wasn't enough, she she was she had so her doctorate was in physics, but she was fascinated by telecommunications. Now, my impression is that our listener who is a little bit young, um, but we those of us who are sort of our age will be fascinated to find out that she invented caller ID, <laughs> call waiting. <laughs> Yes, call waiting and the touchstone telephone. And I remember those were like huge inventions in the 70s, 80s, whenever that was. Right? I'm sure you do too. Oh my God, the touchstone phone first off, because (laughs) you get through like six numbers on the rotary and they have to hang up and start all over again. And caller ID was the most amazing invention. That was so great. But the problem was, is that now you could no longer prank people. Yes. Although that. I do believe if you press star five, nine or three, nine or something like that, you could cover your number, but you know, <laughs> we but always take some yeah. of our teenage fun out. <laughs> but we always found a way, right? It's like whenever like a virus gets stronger and the antibiotics get stronger, the virus just gets, gets, just gets stronger. So, you know, mm-hmm. as teenagers, we always found the way around any sort of constraints that would limit and our they fun. Still do. So, oh, yes. That's a whole other episode, I think. Um, too. Yeah, exactly. And a few glasses of wine. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, she was behind these inventions. And her research also led to the inventions of the portable fax, solar cells, and fiber optic cables. So I don't know too much about fiber optic cables. All I know is that they are extremely paramount to to so much you know of the telecommunications world right now so she's an absolutely brilliant trailblazer and absolutely worth mentioning should i go on to another woman yeah sure all right so grace hopper she was born in 1906 so we're you know uh, early, early 90s so she was a u.s navy rear admiral and in the navy she was a computer scientist a computer mm. scientist in 1906. Are you, are you like following? Like, can you? I didn't even know there were computer scientists uh, in 1906. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, no, I, I'm not ashamed to say it. I thought it was like horses and buggies and computers. Like, well, I think <laughs> it was a little past the horses. Well, I don't know when was the first car invented. Maybe it was still horses and buggies. Honestly, when was the phone know. invented? <laughs> oh my god! Please let's let's do, we haven't even started our topic today. Let's not go I down know. the rabbit hole. Okay. <laughs> okay. So good for her. So um yeah okay so listen to this so she was a pioneer in computer programming the research that she did actually led to COBOL which is it's, it's a very old programming language but it's still in use today it's one of the you know the oldies but goodies and mm-hmm. listen this is the part that I liked of course um, she was working on the Mark II computer at Harvard so she also went to Harvard um, uh-huh. and- and something wasn't functioning properly. So they opened up the computer. So, you know, I'm thinking computer, like my laptop, but this was probably like a, a half a room. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> it, was, it was probably like, it was probably like, you know, the size of my entire apartment. But anyway, um, so they opened up the computer and there was a moth stuck in it, you know, impeding its okay. functioning. Uh-huh. So get this. She coined the phrase, we need to debug the computer. <laughs> oh, okay so she's the one who did that can i give you my tidbit of info on that i know uh, nothing yeah. about her she sounds amazing yeah but do you remember <laughs> on jeopardy way back when the very first guy was it ken whatever he was whoever the first guy to win a million dollars to actually finish jeopardy yeah no I'm oh. wrong. It's who wants to be a millionaire. Right. Okay. <laughs> and the first guy to win the million dollars on who wants to be a millionaire made it through the whole thing with Regis wow. Philbin. Right. The final question was that was about, what? uh, yes. The final question was about why do they call, um, when, you know, the problem in the computer, it's, it has a bug. And the reason wow. was is because of the moth inside the computer. So there you go. No way. So <laughs> yep. you knew that, in like the 80s and I stumbled onto it in 2022 <laughs> but I didn't know what Whoa. happened leading up to it I just knew that was the reason okay <laughs> you see everything <laughs> comes everything comes full circle right yeah oh my god okay that's good <laughs> that's good all right and I'm going to well you see I want to um, present this last woman because I'm anxious. I don't even know what you're going to be talking about this week. So I'm anxious to get onto your topic. So check <laughs> this out. There was a mm-hmm. woman born in 1866. So even older than the, um, the other women I mentioned, 1866. Mm-hmm. All right. Her name was Elizabeth yep. Ma- Maggie. Um, I think okay. she's known as Lizzie Maggie, you know, you and I who are like close friends of hers, we can call her Lizzie. Uh, okay. anyway, she was a feminist and an activist, and she invented a game called the Landlord's Game in order to illustrate. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know this too? I figured it out, but go on. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. You, just stop raining on my parade, would you? I'm on it. <laughs> oh, God. You can snap your fingers. Was that you snapping? Yes. Oh, I can't snap my fingers. Damn. Anyway, sorry, that's just a little aside. Anywho, right, so she invented a game called the Landlord's Game to illustrate the negative effects of land monopolization. And Mm -hmm. that game went on to become Monopoly, a hugely, wildly successful board game whose invention is normally credited to or accredited to Charles Darrow. Yep. Because 
are you going to continue talking? Nope. <laughs> because didn't, if I'm not mistaken, now anybody who has like, I think it's Hulu or Amazon Prime or Netflix, one of those, they have the Monopoly story, which I always say I'm going to watch. Right. I think he stole it from her. Well, yeah. And like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I was, you know, researching it. And now they say, like, when you look it up, they're like, he, he based the Monopoly game on her game. But I'm pretty sure that up until a few years ago, if we had been researching, they would just been like, nope, he invented it without any sort of um, recognition of what, um, you know, started it, let's say. So there's, okay, yep. I didn't even know that was on. I didn't even know that. Is that like a documentary? Yes. All right. I'm going to have to uh, look that up. So those are some tidbits about women, incredible women who invented some pretty amazing stuff that we still use awesome. today. I know. We wouldn't be having this podcast right now if we didn't have our computers and <laughs> cobalt. <laughs> I know. Thank you. <laughs> so uh, I'm not right. going to go on. Right. So thank you, listener. Thank you so much, listener, for, for telling you that you were interested in that and for giving us uh, a heads up to delve a little bit into that. All right, Chris, tell me what's what's on the menu for this week. Okay. Well, I want to thank you, Deb, for last week's uh, topic. I will say I felt like I was a little off. I was, to be honest, I was under the weather and the next day I got really sick. Yeah. <laughs> so if I sounded I like I wasn't into it, I was, but I was really fighting a virus. Not oh. COVID, but it was a virus. So uh, <laughs> maybe I thought it was, maybe real, it was really such a good uh, topic. Um, oh, thank so, you. But you didn't answer all my questions. Oh. So. Wow. Then I, I don't had to take it into my own hands. <laughs> if you remember correctly, you did, could not tell me when did humans first plant seeds. <laughs> I'm so, so sorry. Yeah, well, yeah. it's time you learn, Chicky. According <laughs> to Science Daily, okay, researchers believe that farming was in, invented, quote unquote, some like 12,000 years ago in Iraq, the Levant, parts of Turkey, and Iran. Now, Iran is an area of the world just known. Uh, first known to be like the home of the earliest civilization. Mm -hmm. However, there was a study done and it was a lot of pages and, you know, a lot of this with lots and lots of prestigious universities. And they discovered the first plant cultivation actually began earlier, like 2,300 years ago. No, wow. I lied, 23,000 years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, and, for the, and for those who don't know what the Levant is. With, like me? But yeah, I, I like was anybody. pretending I did. <laughs> oh, the Levant. Okay. Well, the Levant. It's yeah. the region along eastern Mediterranean shores. It roughly is like modern day Israel, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, and those areas. Oh. So, so now you know. Now, mm -hmm. how they figured it out, I don't know. But that's about when they started doing that. Okay. Uh, and then I was curious, and again, no info. Uh, how did humans decide what plant would be safe to eat? And it's kind of like how we assumed it was, you know, they watched the animals, see what they ate. So they followed suit or they would, you know, kind of look to see who dropped dead and not eat that. plant. So it was trial and error. Oh and my God. Poor finally, mm -hmm. finally, you could not tell me like when the idea of marriage began. You know, when the institution of marriage uh, arrived. I don't know if I have the right answer. Because I got my answer from brides.com. Oh, my God. 
I'd like to know when marriage is going to stop being a thing. But anyway, that's a whole other. <laughs> I think it's working on it, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so according to this prestigious website, uh, the most ancient societies needed a secure environment for the perpetuation of this uh, perpetuation of the species, a system of rules to handle the uh, the property rights and protection mm-hmm. of blood- mm-hmm. bloodlines, just like you said. Okay. Well, thank and you for giving marriage, me credit for something. <laughs> and thus marriage uh, handled these needs. So mm-hmm. they're thinking marriage comes from Middle English, which I had no idea what that was. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically the period of time between 1150 and 1500. Okay. Uh, so it was first seen around 1250 or so. Um, although they believe it, the practice predated that. So really I have no answer for you. <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> so what do we approximately think that the the institution of marriage was created when? Like in the 1200s well, or something? 1250 AD. All right. Well, you know, anything that starts could have an end, like we said. So. All good things must come to an end. So. <laughs> now, oh, now. Lord. Now, well, now. Stop being fresh. Okay. I know, I know, I know. Um, well, uh, thank you for need- complimenting. You know what I mean? Like, what's it called? Um, building on everything else I said and finding those unanswered questions. Thank well, you. I'm sure everybody out there was curious and they needed to know the answer. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I'm sure. All right. So. Okay. Now I have, I didn't know what you were doing last week, which came into what I was doing this week. And actually the beginning of this episode, believe it or not, kind of goes with what I'm going to talk about. Oh, see, my topic this week kind of fell into my lap. I was actually going to do it, uh, do this one last time, but I realized this topic was more to it than I realized. So I did St. Patrick's Day. Right. Uh, So it turns out it kind of comes on the heels of your episode. Huh. And I have to be honest, I'm truly humbled by this week's topic. I know I will not by any means do this justice. I'm actually ashamed to admit I have no real idea. Uh. I remember all the hubbub created by this topic, but I didn't really pay attention to it. Um, Ooh, I but like now hubbub. that, yeah, I know. Now that I've, I started it. I've read and I've read. I watched two movies, several yeah. YouTube videos, and I really there's two books I want to go get. <laughs> wow, I'm uh, fascinated. But you know what? Let's just not forget, and this is something I always have to do too. Let's always not forget that the purpose of this podcast is just learn a few things that we didn't know yesterday. So I'm sure you will do more than justice to whatever this topic is, and we will learn something. Well, yes, and I hope that people want to learn more, or they already know anyway. I'm telling you, I just really, my eyes were closed to this. So I'm sure anyone listening knows about this, and I um, more than I did anyway, but if you're not from the U.S., or if you're like been under a rock, the same one that I have been, then mm-hmm. please listen. The lives in the um, of the people in the U.S. would be completely different today if it weren't wow. for this. Oh my God, uh, my curiosity is so piqued. Well, as much as I'd like to have a give a cute little story with some cute little high points, I can't mm-hmm. do that. This story has been told, but I wasn't listening. Mm-hmm. And I'll be as brief and concise as I can. But if I chop it down too much, it really it. it won't have any meaning to it. I'm so. all ears. Did it also Forever? affect Canadian Canadian people? 
No. Well, I don't know. Maybe yes, maybe no. I mean. <laughs> it's okay. I'm just, you just keep talking. I'm just going to go grab a coffee. And <laughs> oh, yeah. Run the bath. Okay. Let's begin. Right. Okay. There are no truer words than good things come in small packages. But in this case, it would be great things. The lady I want to introduce to you is soft-spoken, serious, and shy. However, she is five feet, one inch of pure dynamite. I think you all know her as Notorious RBG. I'm talking about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the second Mm -hmm. woman, the first Jewish woman, appointed to the Supreme Court of the United States of America. Wow. For those of you not familiar with the Supreme Court... It is the highest court in the nation. It's comprised of nine justices, one chief, and eight associates. And it takes judicial precedence over all of the courts in the nation. So if other courts cannot agree on something, they eventually may go up to the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is an amazing topic. Thank you so much. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, you know, I only found out about her sort of like in the last year, and she's incredibly inspiring. I'm sure that what you're going to tell me today is going to like shed way more light on her. So thank you so much for that. Um, I, yes. Yeah. Go I for am it. very happy to share it. And I I've been kicking myself cause I just don't feel like it's coming across how I want it to, but I'm going to give it my best shot. Uh, when she passed away in 2020, the nation was mourning. Quite honestly, I knew of her obviously. And I remember the notorious RBG period around 2013, but I never really took notice, you know, Mm-hmm. Um, well, I have now, and her story is incredible. This woman isn't a woman's liber, so to speak. She's for gender equality. Mm-hmm. Uh, she saw from a young age how genders were treated differently, and whether she meant to or not, it she ended up changing history. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is why I am doing this story in two parts. Okay. Or two episodes, I should say. This oh. is the first episode. This is part one of the Ruth Bader Ginsburg story. Okay. Joan Ruth Kiki Bader was born March 15th, 1933 to Nathan and Celia Bader in Brooklyn, New York. Mm-hmm. Her father was from Odessa, Ukraine. That oh, was at the time God. of the Russian empire. See how it's all wow. kind of blended. I know it's incredible. And with the women, as you said, we were talking about at the beginning of the episode, like, wow, so incredible. I know. (laughs) Her mother was from New York, although her parents were from Krakow, Poland, Mm -hmm. which was part of Austria-Hungary back then. Okay, didn't know that. Ruth was the younger of two daughters. However, her sister died of meningitis when Ruth was about 14 months old. Oh, God. Okay, Mm. I'm sorry. Because of my sore throat, I have to pause for a moment. That is no problem. I'm already digesting everything you're saying, and you've only been talking for a few minutes. Wow. (laughs) Okay, well, the Baders were a low-income, working-class family. Her mother, Celia, didn't have a college education, because back then, Jewish families spent the money for the education on the oldest son, so he was able to provide later. However, she did strongly believe in the importance of a formal education and passed that love on of learning on to Ruth. Now, you may ask why Ruth does not go by the name Joan. Well, funny thing is, back when Ruth was in kindergarten, her mother noticed there were a lot of children named Joan in her class. Hmm. So she decided that Ruth should go by her middle name and so that she would stand out. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> her roots to gender inequality go back to when she was, uh, go way back to when she was 13 and not allowed to have a bat mitzvah mitzvah because her orthodox religion did not allow women to read from the Torah. Hmm. 
And now remember, this is, you know, you're talking about the 40s here. She was Jewish. She was a girl. I mean, things were stacked against her. Yeah. And well, this Ruth is worked hard. War era as well. Sorry, and it's war era. And it's, oh, yeah. Um, and, you know, the Second World War, the Nazis and the, and the Jews. So absolutely very, very difficult time. Mm-hmm. You're drinking well. again, aren't you? I have to. Ruth Ricard and excelled at her classes through high school, but sadly was unable to attend her graduation. Her mother had been battling breast cancer for four years, and unfortunately she passed away the day before her graduation ceremony. Oh, God. So after high school, Ruth headed to Cornell University, where Ruth received her bachelor's in 1954 with high honors in government and distinction in all subjects. While there, she also um, she was also the college arts and sciences class marshal. I don't know what that is. <laughs> it's okay. Cornell is also where she would meet the love of her life, Martin Ginsburg, uh, whom she would go on to enjoy fifty six years of marriage. Their marriage was seriously one for the books. This one was to admire. This is a story all to itself. And you I will see? probably touch oh, on that. Okay. What's that? I was just going to say, this also ties into what we we're saying at the beginning, what I was sort of marriage bashing. Yeah. This, <laughs> the, oh, I am, wow. I mean, she had died before I was watching these, like I said, just watching documentaries. I'm like crying in it. Oh, no. <laughs> yes. Oh, my. It's a, But I will touch on there probably in episode two. Okay. Okay. So. Ruth's college years were shortly after World War II, which was a time when culture was reinforcing its gender roles. These women who worked extremely hard in the workplace and at home while their husbands were at war were now told to leave the workplace and go back and raise the kids and tend to their husbands. This was, and this was still the attitude when the um, Ruth and Martin moved to Fort Sill, Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. They called this their home for the next two years due to the fact that Martin had been called up to active duty in the reserves. So luckily, Ruth was able to secure a job at the Social Security Administration on the base. Well, unfortunately, she was demoted. Oh. Do you know why? No. Well, they she discovered she was pregnant with her first child. Oh, my God. And pregnant women would get demoted in their jobs back then. Oh, my God. Yeah. So the well, couple welcomed their... What's pro- Sorry, I was just going to say, I, I'm pretty sure it still happens today, too, but in a much more, um, what's it called, you know, <laughs> sneaky way. But anyway, sorry, go on. Yeah, no, it's illegal now, you, so they would have to be very sneaky. Yeah. Uh, anyway, the couple welcomed their daughter, Jane, in 1955. So after Martin served his two years, the couple moved back to Massachusetts, where Martin would resume his studies at Harvard Law. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ruth wanted to enroll also. And I actually just learned this today that she chose law. It, it interests her. It was, but Harvard, um, they only had business school and law school, but the business school wasn't open to women. So she chose law. Oh my God. <laughs> but she did like it anyway. It wasn't like, she's like, that's all I can do. You know? Oh my God. That's so incredible. she wanted to enroll, uh, but she was actually concerned she would not be able to handle the rigors of law school and motherhood and handling of the home. Wow. But Martin encouraged her and her father also did. And he's the one who helped to decide. He told her, if you thought it would be too much to, uh, 
too much and decide to devote yourself to the family, no one will look down on this decision. However, when a person truly loves something, as you seem to, that person will make it happen. So she enrolled. They hired grandmotherly nanny and Martin and Ruth arranged their schedules. So someone was always home at four o'clock so the nanny could leave. Oh my God. Perfect. What? Ruth entered Harvard as one of nine women in a class of 500. Oh my God. Now keep in mind, Harvard just began allowing women in to his university in 1950. Mm. And it's what now? 55. Mm -hmm. Uh, so now what happened next would get any Dean fired to this day toward the beginning of her first term Dean Edwin Griswold hosted a dinner for the nine women in his home along with those nine women he invited nine distinguished professors to act as their escort oh for the love of god (laughs) (laughs) then wait then he instructed the women to turn to their assigned escort and tell them what uh what they think they were doing in law school, occupying a seat that could have been held by a man. Oh my God. Like what business do you have being in school in law school? You better explain it to these professors. Oh my God. Oh, for the love of God. Yeah. Sorry. I have no witty comeback to that. It's just mind blowing. Well, Ruth was really irritated and actually caught her by it caught her by surprise. She actually knocked over an ashtray when she was told to do this. Uh, wait, 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 wait a second. Knocked over an ashtray. So I'm thinking of an, an ashtray, like a small ashtray, like on a table, but it was probably one of those one like freestanding. That's one, what I'm um, guessing. The one, yeah. Back in the fifties. Can you picture it? The, the, the tweed couch yeah. with the stand up uh, ashtray on the long yeah. skinny. Yeah. Yeah, like brass. And it was probably- yep. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, I digress. Yes? <laughs> um, but Ruth was never one to answer the, a question in anger or frustration. Her mom taught her that. Mm. So she came up with an answer that she thought would satisfy the dean and the professors. She said her husband was a second-year student, and it was important for a wife to understand her husband's work. Of course, what she didn't say was she also want what she wanted to say was, so he could understand her work. <laughs> but she digressed. Uh, she did say later that she didn't feel that the professor, or the dean had asked with malice, but actually to clarify to the professors why it was acceptable to enroll women into Harvard. Oh, God, yeah. So the gender inequalities at Harvard continued. Some classes the women attended would have a ladies' day mm. where only the women would answer the questions. But for all the rest of the days, they were asked none. All right. So not only did they only have one day that they could ask questions. uh, On the flip side, there were also plenty of bathrooms for the men. And there was only one bathroom in the entire campus of Harvard for the women. Uh, Also, the women weren't allowed in the faculty dining room. And they were not allowed in the old periodical room of the library. So if they had to do research, they had to tell a man to go what she needed. He'd go in, find the research. And then bring it to her. So you see how incredible it is that, like, these women studying was hard, you know, in its own right. But then having to overcome all of these obstacles, these extra logistics of not being able to go to the bathroom and, um, you know, trying to figure out what books they needed and get a man. Like, doesn't that just show that they had to make that much more of an effort to get their education? 
Like it yes, just shows how how incredibly remarkable they are. Amazing. Well, this uh, so these women also could not live in the dormitory, which was fine. Ruth, she lived off campus anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is only a very small example of the ways uh, Ruth had to deal with inequalities in life. It was either because she was Jewish or a woman or, God forbid, a mother. And on top of all this, the Ginsburg family was struck with some devastating news. Marty was diagnosed with cancer. Oh, no. Yeah, it was 1957. Marty was in his second year of Harvard when he was diagnosed with a virulent form of testicular cancer. Oh, God. To be honest, I wasn't 100% sure what virulent was because I was thinking like virus. But Oxford yeah. Dictionary defines it as a disease or poison of extreme, extremely severe or harmful in its effects. Oh, no. So it and sounds it like so a fast, rapid-moving one. Yeah, and I've heard, actually, that t- testicular cancer in particular really does affect young men. Like, right. Because he's only been I in his 20s. Too. Oh, no. Anyway, okay, go on. Well, his prognosis was quite grim because mm. at, at that time there were no known cases of survivors. Oh, no. uh, he was going to need two operations and weeks and weeks of radiation. Therefore, Marty would miss out most of his second semester at Harvard. Oh. Did I mention Ruth Bader Ginsburg was an actual badass? Well, she you know, already is in my books, but I'm looking forward to hearing more. <laughs> well, I'm pretty sure if we look up her name, it'll probably just say badass under it. <laughs> well, because Marty didn't want to fall back on his studies, Ruth devised a plan. She gathered a group of students that she thought would be the best at taking notes for him. They would then use carbon paper. Those who are old enough understand what carbon paper is. Yeah, I don't don't remember. I'm too young Okay. I'm kidding. (laughs) They would stick the carbon paper between two pieces of notebook pages. And of Mm -hmm. course, as they wrote, it would transfer it to the other page. Mm -hmm. So then Ruth would type them out so Marty could read them easier. You know, and some of the students had come by and discussed seminars with him that he missed. He had like a really good personality. People liked him. Oh, uh, my God. And yeah, his com- personality combined with her like ingenious uh, methods. Wow, he, that's incredible. Yeah, she was very serious. She was not a, you know, she was friendly enough, but she was just a very serious person. Those two were opposites. But again, I'll go back to that. Yeah. Um. So while Marty was receiving radiation treatments, Ruth would wake up, go to classes, meet with the note takers, go home, play with Jane until bedtime, type up all Marty's notes, take his dictation for homework. He would fall asleep around two in the morning and then she would start her work for school. (gasps) This is the exact time when she learned how to work all night and function on only one or two hours of sleep. And she continued to work this way for the rest of her life. I cannot process that. People always have to tell her, Ruth, it's time to, you need to eat something. Ruth, you need to go to bed now. And you couldn't pull away unless she's done. Then she'll go. But she's always worked that way forever. Oh my God. I, I can't deal with that. Like, I don't know if I need eight hours of sleep, but I definitely need more than one or two hours of sleep. I need an hour or two just to wake up. Yeah. Oh my Lord. Okay. Well, the good news is by the end of the semester, Marty's treatment had been a success. Oh, good. He got the highest exam grades of his college career, and Ruth finished the year with top grades, which made her one of the top ten in her class. And wow. with that accomplishment, she became the very first woman to make the Harvard Law Review. Wow. Amazing. Well, so life continues, and Marty graduates, and he's offered a job in a top law firm in New York. Ruth obviously doesn't want the family broken up, so she transfers to Columbia Law School. 
she was top of her class after her first semester and was offered a seat at the Columbia Law Review. Wow. Now, there's not too many people out there, especially back then, women, uh, and especially women, can say they made the Law Review at both Harvard and Columbia. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, in 1959, she did graduate, and she was first in her class. Wow. So now she's obviously going to look for a job, right? You'd think Harvard, Columbia, top of class. That would be beating down your door, right? Mm, well, judging Let's from remember. the tone of your voice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's remember, she is a woman, so there's a, a strike against you. She's Jewish. Mm. Another strike. And she's a mother. Oh, God. She applied to numerous law firms, and out of all of them, only two granted her an interview. Oh, God. Uh, she did finally get a clerkship with Judge Palmieri of the U.S. Dis- District Court, but not because he wanted her, mm-hmm. but because one of the professors at Columbia basically threatened him. Oh, Don't worry. Well, it, it was that he wouldn't send any more students to, to him if he didn't give Ruth a chance. Wow. And she, right. And she did not disappoint. If you read one of the many books... On her, you'll see she actually saves his ass quite a few times. Wow. <laughs> I'm sure. I have no doubt. <laughs> uh, so then in 1961, Ruth was offered a job to help co-author a book about civil procedure in Sweden. <laughs> Whoa. Okay. Yeah. No idea she how did. that came about. <laughs> well, she did love civil procedure, and that's some of the courses that she took. I mean, who doesn't, really? <laughs> I cannot get enough civil procedure. I, I know. Doesn't that sound like the driest topic known to man? Uh, yeah. It's, I don't know. It's, it's a toss up between civil procedure and frozen peas. I'm not sure. <laughs> Tough call. Well, All if you're right. going to be in the frozen pea business, you better go to Canada. Yeah. Anyway. So she loved the idea of authoring a book, but what really impressed her was that he was willing to hire a woman and pay her, get this, the mm. same salary as a man. Ooh. Absolutely unheard of in those days. And, and these days. These <laughs> days, too. <laughs> but that's a different episode. So she did what anyone else would have done. She took the job, learned as much as she could about the topic. Uh, oh, yeah. Learned Swedish. Uh, <laughs> as, as you do. Yeah. Uh, once she got into it, she had to travel to Sweden. And this is where she begins to see that the whole world is not gender biased. She noted that like 20, 25% of the law students were female. And one of the judges she observed for the book was eight months pregnant and still working. Oh my God. I know. So, so these like Scandinavian countries are known for being so ahead in terms of um, gender equality and like, you know, men's rights um, in terms of childbirth and time off. And this started ages ago. I didn't know that. That's actually super fascinating. Yeah. they. I, I mean, the Nordic countries are amazing. Wow. All right. Okay. So in 1963, she finished the book mm-hmm. and she was hired by Rutgers University as a professor. However, her pay would be quite low as they were a state school. Oh, and they would pay her even less. You know why? Because she's a woman? No, because she was married and her husband had a good job. Seems fair. <laughs> it's, you know, I'm laughing too, so I don't cry, right? <laughs> I know, exactly. Oh, for the love of God. Excuse oh, me. Okay. Yeah. 
Are you drinking water okay. again? Oh, oh no. Okay. No, I just coughed a little. I'm sorry. I'm trying the best <laughs> I can. I'm sure my four S's are just slurring like crazy. No. <laughs> You're doing great, my sick girl. All right. All right. So we're up to 65. So in 1965, Ruth discovered she was pregnant again, which was quite a surprise as no one thought it was possible after Marty's cancer treatments. Ooh, right. So, yeah. So anyway, Rutgers ran on yearly contracts and Ruth was afraid her contract would not be renewed if they knew she was expecting. Mm. So she did what anyone else would do. She hid her pregnancy by wearing her mother-in-law's clothing. <gasps> and once she signed on the dotted line, she shared the news. <laughs> I like her. Oh my God. Ah, <laughs> oh, incredible. I know. Luckily, baby James was born September of 65, right before the semester began. <laughs> oh, what a good baby. I know. Oh. <laughs> now, lest we think this slowed her down in any way, oh, uh, in her first three years at Rutgers, according to the book, okay, can people just make a smaller title of books? Oh, for the love of Free God. Free to be yes. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the story of women in law by Terry Canefield. In her first three years, she published seven articles, saw her two books on Swedish procedure be published. And then in 66, she was named to the, okay, ready, to the editorial board of the American Journal of Comparative Law. And if that's not enough, that, uh, then she was named to the European Law Committee of the American Bar Association's section of International Law and Protect. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, wait. So uh, she still wasn't busy enough. Don't forget, she still has a family at home. She joined the Foreign Law Committee of the New York Bar and also became a member of the Citizen Union and a member of the Children's International Summer Villages. Oh, my God. Oh, Chris, do you think that if we only slept one or two hours a day, we could do all that? I don't know if I'd want to. <laughs> I just can't. You know, quite, to be fair, she didn't She didn't have the time to sit and just scroll for two hours and go, oh, where'd my day go? <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. We're very busy scrolling. Yeah. She didn't have to worry um, about scrolling. So <laughs> anyway, no. oh, my God, what a fascinating woman. Just it's so inspiring. Well, through all of this, she's still doing the brunt of work at home. Because Marty was working extra to make partner of a major law firm. And also in 1966, she was promoted to associate professor and Marty was becoming one of the New York City top tax attorneys. Wow. <laughs> so life, I, I mean, you can say life was busy, but yeah. they were doing well. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, when they were at work one day, they got a, the call that no parent wants. Oh, no. Their two-year-old son had <gasps> climbed on the counter and gotten oh. into a bottle of Drano. Do you know what Drano is? Yes. Okay. Oh. I didn't know if Canada calls it Drano. <laughs> I don't know if Canada calls it Drano, but you know, it, it, yeah, it's, I know it's a little just, bit. Of... It's corrosive. It's that corrosive liquid you pour down the drain yes. to, to clear it. Oh, Fortunately, God. he did not actually ingest the poison because that surely would have killed him. However, it did cause severe burns to his lips and face. Oh, baby. Uh, he'd be okay. And would require re reconstructive surgery, which was successful. Oh, but the reporters were questioning Ruth. Their main concern, I mean, you know, not like we should have childproof safety gaps. It was, right. uh, don't you feel guilty for not being at home? Oh, don't you feel guilty for being a working mother? Oh, and she would God. simply reply, Ruth, mm -hmm. 
the way she replied, she always stopped. She mm-hmm. thought what she was going to say, and she would just mm-hmm. carefully say her words. We could all take a page so, out of her book. Yeah. I'm telling you, you've, yeah, <laughs> it's incredible. Yeah. She said, no, I regret the mistake that was made by failing to keep the poison out of his reach, not for being a working mother. She also would never waver from uh, uh, commending the housekeeper for her exemplary response to the emergency. Wow. Basically, accidents happen. Yeah. Thank God he's safe. Move on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oh, and so, it could have happened to somebody, you know, anybody, who, even if you were at home, it could happen. So this, you know, tendency right. to want to blame everything on the working mother was a complete overreach, I think. Oh, for sure. God. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, you turn you back for two seconds on toddler, they're into everything. Yeah, exactly. Oh, God. All right. So as I think everyone knows, we are rolling into the mid to late 60s. And as an understatement, the world is changing. We're talking women's liberation, racial segregation, the death of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Vietnam, etc. Truly a turbulent time in history. The students at Rutgers at this time asked for a course in women and the law. The school asked Ruth to do it, and of course she said yes. So she spent one month in the library trying to learn as much as she could about it. Now, mind you, it wasn't because it was such a wealth of information to learn. There was so little she had to dig day after day trying to find something. I was going to say, yeah, she probably <laughs> invented most of the information on that. Well, I think she changed it. I think there's a lot more books now. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Um, but she did design the course and, and with the knowledge she had. And one of the things she t- really took notice of was the laws. And although they said they were there to protect women, they were, in fact, designed to protect men. She wow. thinks from more like the female competition. Wow. And now she'll see this white seemingly meek woman almost fell in like almost fell into this path of gender equality i don't think she set out to do this it just kept falling in her lap yeah 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 you know what i'm saying i mean she she truly turned out to be quite a powerhouse she never wow. screamed or yelled to get a point across in fact she knew all the facts she would make her decision and never wavered she was strong in her points and there was no room for argument you know she'd choose her words very wisely and knew when not to say when to say nothing you know yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, just uh, I love what you said about her always thinking before she speaks, because I, I really do mean that we could all take a page out of her book, me particularly. Like it's <laughs> oh, so, for, yeah, yeah, it's so, oh my God, it makes such a difference when you stop for a minute to gather your thoughts and sort of remove the emotion and just mm-hmm. um, reply using your brain <laughs> and not right. the circumstances. Yeah. Oh, wow. Like if I learned nothing else from her, that's a good one. I know it is. Hey, we all learned something. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, after Rutgers, she worked at Columbia University from uh, 72 to 80, where she was the school's first tenured professor. Mm -hmm. During that time, she became a volunteer lawyer for the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union. You've heard of that, right? Uh, About 30 seconds ago. Yep. Oh, you, you never heard about the ACLU? No, they basically for America for civil civil rights. People would right, come to okay. them complaining about something that an injustice, and they would try to fix it. And they had volunteer lawyers to help, and wow, that's what she was. Okay. She was a volunteer lawyer, and then later she became a director of the Women's Rights Project for the ACLU. Okay, thank so as you. a volunteer lawyer, these gender discrimination cases started coming through her office. Um, some of the cases she fought were 
like the blue collar women wanted the opportunity to get health insurance for their families through their job. However, the law at the time was a woman is, was that women were considered second wage earners and therefore only men, even if they earned or worked less, were the only ones who could receive health insurance for the family. Uh, there was another one came through like, uh, for pregnant school teachers, they wanted their maternity leave to secure their job. See at the time, if you were pregnant, uh, and a school teacher, you were taught, uh, you were able to teach until you began to show, then you would go on what they called maternity leave, which was unpaid with no guarantee. You have a job after the birth of your child. <laughs> what kind of leave is that? That's getting your ass fired. If that's, I've ever heard it. Leave. <laughs> Like, don't let the door hit you on the way out. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Oh, and they actually God. argued in court, we don't want the children to think you swallowed a watermelon. Oh. <laughs> well, you can't argue with that logic. It, pure oh. logic. <laughs> All righty. Well, while she was volunteering with the ACLU, she argued over 300 gender equality cases. And six of them actually uh, she took up to the Supreme Court. And she wow. won five of them. Wow. Uh, it's not easy to get a case to the Supreme Court. It takes a lot to get one up there, by the way. Wow. <laughs> so now, if you're not aware that up until 1971, the Supreme Court never saw a gender classification case that they thought was unfair. In most of her interviews, Ruth loves to cite two cases that truly showcase how the law really leaned towards men. Mm. Um, the first one comes in 1948, Gosser versus Cleary. There was a woman who owned a tavern in Oklahoma. However, did I say Oklahoma? Yes. Oh. <laughs> I think I meant Michigan. <laughs> you know, Oklahoma, Michigan, on, who doesn't get them mixed up all the time? That was a typo. <laughs> I think we so, can move on from this. I think we're going to be okay. Did I mention I've been sick. A woman owned a, ta a, a tavern, period. However, Michigan, Michigan, try again. Michigan just passed a law that women were not allowed to tend par unless the woman was the wife or daughter of the male bar owner. This was a problem as she was a female owner and was basically putting her, her out of business. Uh, the Supreme Court said bars can be unpleasant. States are just protecting women's from such bad atmospheres oh and therefore Gosser lost back in 48. Please note, there are no laws keeping women from serving drinks to the possible drunk or unruly customers. And certainly no, you know, retribution for the drunk or unruly customers because you know, well, that boys will be boys. But like, <laughs> Oh my God, instead of trying to actually deal with the problem, they just take the, <laughs> You know, the whatever, um, well, the temptation right. out of the way. Oh, for the love of God. Okay. Yeah, well, right. well, it's actually, I don't even know if that was the case. It just seemed like if you made, if I was a bartender, I guess you had to have a license back then to be a bartender. Okay. So you were taking, a woman was taking a license away from a man, let's be honest. Exactly. There you go. Now you're talking. <laughs> Logic. So the, other, so the other case you will usually refer to is the 1961 case of Hoyt versus Florida. Uh, Mrs. Hoyt was in a very abusive marriage and one day her husband has basically just humiliated her to the core and 
evidently this this whole thing is kind of an accident but be that as it may she saw her young son's baseball bat in the corner so she grabbed it and hit him in the head with it which caused him to fall onto the stone floor hitting his head again Mm -hmm. well he died uh she was convicted by a jury of all men for murder And while in jail, she began to wonder if there had been women on her jury, maybe she could have been convicted for manslaughter instead of murder, as a woman may have understood her plight. See, she's not Mm -hmm. saying she didn't do it, but... (laughs) Yeah. But they would have understood, yeah, except that it wasn't premeditated, that it was self-defense and and all that stuff. Oh, God. Right. Well, Florida has a jury system that allows women, uh, that does allow women. However, it's voluntary. Are you sure it's not Oklahoma? (laughs) <laughs> nope, right now I'm stuck on Florida. Okay. Florida thinks it's a great deal for women, and so does evidently the Supreme Court. They held up Florida's law because in their eyes, women hold no constitutional significance, and a woman's job is to be the center of the home and family life. Aw, that's adorable. I think Aristotle, Aristotle must have been governor of Florida. <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> Oh, wow. Okay. Moving on. Okay. So as I said, she argued six landmark cases in front of the Supreme Court in which she won five of them. They were pivotal in changing the way the world looked at gender equality. Uh, If you have a chance, listen to her tell her stories. You can hear actually audio arguments that were happening in the courtroom on always.org. O-Y-E-Z dot org. Hang on. (laughs) O Y, I'm actually writing this down. O Y, what? Easy. Uh huh. Dot org. Org. Okay, thank you. Wow. Mm-hmm. So the first case that she was involved in was Reed versus Reed in 1971. I say involved because she didn't actually argue it. She wrote the brief, but it was the brief that won the case. Wow. <laughs> so Sally Reed was a single mother earning a living and taking care of by taking care of disabled people in her home. When her son Skip became a teenager, his father Cecil decided he wanted partial custody. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sally claimed that he had been an abusive piece of trash. And I I paraphrased. And it wouldn't be uh, (laughs) (laughs) and it wouldn't be a good environment for her son. And this did prove to be true because in the uh, of course the court decided with the father and Skip had to start spending time with them. Well, Skip began to get depressed, and then one day he took his father's many, one of his father's many guns, loaded it, and shot himself. Oh, my God. Oh. Well, I did find, when I was researching, one article actually mentioned that there is a question of whether or not maybe the father did it. Oh, Because the father God. had taken a life insurance policy uh, oh, on the son recently, so... Uh, but that's not what this is about. But I love oh, no. true crime stories, so I had to mention that. <laughs> oh, no. Okay, what did Ruth have to say about all this? Well, um, because of his age, and of course he didn't have a will. So Sally applied to be administrator of his, you know, air bunnies. I air bunny this word estate because it consisted of maybe like $495, a record collection, and some personal things. Mm-hmm. You know, a teenager stuff. So yeah. Sally applied first, so she thought she, she was good, mm-hmm. or not, because according to uh, Idaho state law at the time, <laughs> males must be preferred to females, must be preferred to females, 
when more than one person is equally qualified to administer the estate. Wait a second, Chris. So, and what year is this again? This is 1971. So that's like, that's not current. that long exactly. ago. It's current. Yeah, it's, it's current. current. I was on it's this a- planet. Yep. <laughs> and I'm a very, I'm very current in age. My age is very current. Yep. I mean, <laughs> I was here for this too. Yeah. So, you know, if your mother or father pass away and you have a brother and a sister, the brother takes care of it. Knock he must work. take care Even if he's a psycho, he must take care of it. Hey, don't you talk about my brother like that. <laughs> <laughs> have you met my brother? Seems like it. <laughs> oh, my anyway. God. So yeah. she wanted to appeal this, but her lawyer and actually 16 other lawyers she talked to said she couldn't win. So she finally found one guy willing to try, and he took it all the way. And this is where Ruth wrote the brief that began to change history. For the first time since the 14th Amendment had gone into effect in 1868, the court had struck down a state law on the grounds it discriminated against a woman and was, in fact, in violation of the Equal Protection Clause. Wow. Now, for those of you from Canada, or not from the U.S., or you missed the history class, let me tell you what the 14th Amendment is. And I quote, No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities for citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive a person life, liberty, or property without due process of law, or deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the law. Hmm. See, it didn't say male. It said citizen. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, uh, yeah, that's a good one. Sorry. So but up to this point, everyone who argued, I mean, this yeah. law had been on the books since the 1800s. And all, like those two examples I gave you before, they didn't. They're like, no, it's not inequality. It's not discrimination. So this law, like the 14th Amendment was written with that wording, like in 1867 yes. or whatever. Citizen, yeah. right? Because like, yeah. I'm surprised that it wasn't man. I know. Um, Wow, that's that's incredible that it had deliberately been misinterpreted, you know, so many times. Incredible. You wow. You know the man? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. okay. So the next one that Ruth mm-hmm. won, mm-hmm. the next one in front of the Supreme Court was a landmark 1973 case of Froterio versus Richardson. I keep thinking you're going to say Kramer versus Kramer. Oh, well, no, actually, believe it or not, they didn't make it. (laughs) This is the, this is actually the first one she actually argued on. And boy, was she nervous. She, uh, she does make reference to the fact that she made sure she doesn't eat anything, uh, that she didn't eat anything that day because she was so nervous. Oh, anyway, Froterio was a woman in the air force. She applied for benefits for her dependent husband. The Air Force told us she needed to prove that he was a dependent before he, she, before he could receive those benefits. Okay. However, men did not have to prove that their wives were dependent on them. It was just uh, assumed. So yeah. Ruth stated in her argument, and I quote, Why did the framers of the 14th Amendment regard racial discrimination as odious? Now, for you people who don't know, odious means extremely unpleasant or repulsive. Okay. Did I you know what it is? I didn't. I, I figured what it meant, but thank you for the definition. <laughs> I, 
I did, although I didn't think it was quite as extreme, like extremely unpleasant, repulsive. I was going, you know. But I thought it was it like is. stinky. <laughs> just, just stinky. No. Well, I'll, well, think about it, yeah. <laughs> Odious. Similar. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. It <would> work. <laughs> anyway, this is going to my vocab. Anyway, because yeah. a person's skin color bears no necessary relationship to ability, similarly... A person's sex bears no nece- uh, necessary relationship to ability. Hmm. The case was won on the basis that classifying benefits on the basis of gender violated the Constitution. Hmm. But what's funny is none of the justice none of the justices could agree why or why not. Like they couldn't understand. They knew it was wrong, but they uh, couldn't figure out yeah. why. They they couldn't give a, a solid answer. Yeah, <laughs> it was really strange. <laughs> oh. I believe it was around this point that Ruth no longer said the word sex, uh, but changed it to gender on the suggestion of her secretary. See, the secretary believed that uh, by just even mentioning the word sex, no matter the reason, it would distract the male judges. Wow, that's a really important um, discovery. I think it sounds like such a small thing, but I I think it's a huge discovery. The distraction and also just, um, you know, basing everything on the differences between just everything being sort of downgraded to sex, you know? So amazing. Oh, good. Good for her. Okay. So another landmark case was that of Weinberger versus Weisenfeld in 75. Mm -hmm. See, Ruth really liked this case because it showcased that both genders could be discriminated against. And she knew the justices would listen better when a man was involved. So Steve and his wife, Paula were expecting a baby. Now, Paula had been a teacher and was working well before and after they got married. In fact, she was the primary source of the couple's income. And she worked up right up to her ninth month. Everything was good. And when she delivered, the baby survived. But sadly, Paula did not. Oh, God. I know. So now Stephen was the uh, main caregiver. And he didn't want to work full time. And he knew he could get by with part-time pay and Paula's Social Security benefits. However, when he applied, they said that only the son was eligible, not a man. Now, had he died, both Paula and her son would have been provided for. Hmm. So believe it or not, it took until it went all the way to the Supreme Court to prove that this was gender discrimination. Oh, my God. I know. So Ginsburg argued that denying a father benefits based solely on the fact that he was male is gender discrimination. And she won unanimously, eight to zero. Oh, amazing. Yeah, Ruth Ruth said she took their very conservative court and taught them that when stereotypes hurt one gender, it hurts both. Wow. Incredible lessons, yeah. So, so see, it wasn't just women being, you know, it, it was women being discriminated against, but it hurt the men. So that was kind of a funny case with Craig versus Bourne in 76. Uh, mm-hmm. Craig was ready for this one. An mm-hmm. Oklahoma liquor vendor. <laughs> Are you sure it wasn't? Yes. Um, yes. Michigan? Yes. Okay. <laughs> well, our friend Craig was challenging the law that prohibits the sale of non-intoxicating 3.2% beer to males under 21. So, Because the law allows women to drink beer at 18. So Ruth decided to flip the tables. She decided to actually condemn the fact that women shouldn't be allowed 
that privilege. And the the, 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 the Supreme Court bit, and they decided to favor Craig, stating that the law was based on gender. Some of the arguments that they had included was there was no scientific data saying men get drunk faster, or that every man is too immature, that every woman is mature enough to drink. Wow. This is so the last case she won. Yeah, I yeah. know. She, she is amazing. And like I said, I could not... You have to hear these things. Otherwise, you don't get it. And even that, I'm not doing it justice. No, so the last are. case... Yeah, but she's okay. amazing. But also, but also getting this insight into how things were. I mean, we, we hear about, know. you know, gender inequality and all that stuff, but just, it would never have occurred to me that if, if I understood correctly, men and women had a different drinking age. So the last case is Duran uh, versus Missouri in 1979. A jury convicted Billy Duran of first degree murder and robbery. Uh, Duran contested saying that the jury selection violated his sixth and 14th amendment rights. His right for a jury chosen from a cross section of the community because, uh, because jury duty for women was still not mandatory. Sound familiar? Well, Ruth argued that such exemptions not only made the jury pool unfair, but it also devalued the uh, contribution that women gave to juries. Mm -hmm. This time, the decision was overturned, and he was allowed a new trial. But you see how much it it hasn't been a super long time? Yeah. But I think, yes, I think the other one was like... um, the other one was what in 61. So between 61 and 79, this eyes are starting to open. Yeah. God. Yeah. Okay. Slow, but <laughs> yes, but a step in the right direction. Okay. Well, when Jimmy Carter was elected president, some laws had passed some sort of law passed and they needed new judges on the appeals level because cases were backing up. I, okay. I read a couple of times and then went back to find exactly what this was and came up with goose eggs. So, when President Carter looked around at the judges, again, I'm not sure where they were. I'm assuming some sort of ceremony, but it really doesn't matter. He looked around and said, huh, I see the federal judges and they look like me. I wish I could say this in Southern accent accent because Jimmy Carter was from Georgia. Uh, <laughs> uh, he goes, they're all men and they are all white, but that is not how the U.S. looks. So he proceeded to appoint many women and many people of color to the bench. And Ruth was one of them. Amazing. In 1980, President Carter appointed Ruth to the Court of Appeals for uh, the District of Columbia Circuit, where she would remain there for 13 years. Wow. Amazing. I love that stuff. <laughs> okay. Well, now I'm going to end this here. We'll pick uh-huh. up when she, with the Supreme Court and some of her personal life and some great stories. Um, I can't stress enough how important this woman was to the men and women of the United States. I know I went on way too long and, but I seriously only touched on the big points to truly understand how amazing this woman was. I beg you to turn on Netflix and watch RBG RBG? or Ruth. I think it's on stars um, or one of the hundreds of videos on YouTube. And if you have like a tween or a teen boy or girl, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Get them to watch it too. Okay. There is a wealth of information out there. This is not a hidden topic. It's everywhere. Yeah. Uh, there's also tons and tons of books for all ages. Like you can get a book for your four-year-old. You can get a book for your 10-year-old. There's millions of books. Uh, there's two yeah. that I'm going to go get. It's called My Own Words by Ruth Herself. Mm-hmm. And Notorious RBG, The Life and Times of Ruth Bader Ginsburg by Erin Carmen. 
Wow. Oh, thank you for those references. Yes, I'm going to at least start, you know, with Netflix and... Uh, Go on watch- Netflix. It's, it's so good. Oh, but... <laughs> What? Thank you, because I wouldn't. I mean, of course, you know, I knew who she was, but of course, I didn't know any of these details. And when you describe it, or maybe in general on this podcast, you just we sort of set the scene too, right? Like it's so easy to think, oh, you know, so and so was a trailblazer, okay, but really, what was she dealing with? What were what was what were things like then? Like it's really it's important to set the scene and 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 really see how things were when. Well, and if you were anything uh, like me, I yeah. said, oh, yeah woman on the Supreme Court. The first one was Sandra Day O'Connor. I remember that. And this one, I knew nothing or why she was there. Just, but now there's no way that I could leave out her early years. You can't just pick up when she became Supreme Court justice. You know, you can't, you have to learn what she did. Exactly. Uh, Well, exactly why it's so remarkable how she got there and, and what the chances were of her getting there. And all everything she had to overcome. This is incredible. All right, so I'm looking forward to yeah. Sorry to, to picking this up in a part two for sure. I'm definitely doing the part two. I do want to leave with some amazing quote, but there were so many of them that I'll just pick you my fa- three favorite quotes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She said, "Women belong in all places where decisions are being made. It shouldn't be that women are the exception." Mm-hmm. She also said. When a thoughtless or unkind word is spoken, it's best to tune out. Reacting in anger or annoyance will not advance one's ability to persuade. Wow, I love that. And my mother told me to be a lady. And for her, that meant be your own person. Be independent. I love that because be a lady has just, in fact, the word lady is, I don't even like the word lady because there's just so much attached to it, you know, like but, be proper. Yes. Yes. Go on. But I mean, those are the times, I mean, you know, and, you know. Yeah. Oh, amazing. I, I can't wait to hear more about this, Chris. I do think you're doing justice to it because I'm, I'm fascinated by her and I can't wait to, to watch this documentary. Um, so yay, we're uh, looking forward to that. So for today, should we wrap up? I think we should. We've, I've drawn on way too long. No, <laughs> I hope everybody, do, I hope everybody learned a little something today. Oh, I'm sure they did. And this was a little bit of a, a departure from our normal, um, what's it called format because I, uh, wanted to address our listeners' requests. So, uh, you know, I took a longer time to do the introduction. So that's no problem at all. This was amazing. So, I think it's uh, all good. yeah, I told, I definitely do. And um, so as I, we were saying at the beginning, we want to thank everybody so much for tuning in and giving us a listen and showing all of the love that you've been showing. Uh, if you're on Instagram, Follow us on uh, Today We Laughed and Learned. If you're on Facebook, Today We Laughed and Learned, we'd love to hear from you, whether it's in the comments or personal messages uh, or on our email, todaywelaughed at gmail.com. I know for sure, Chris, that today we laughed (laughs) and learned about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We sure did. Thank you so much. We did. It was fantastic. Thank you so much for everybody for listening. And have a good week. You too. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye.